Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Monday, October 5th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. Archaeologists have found evidence of neurons in the brain of a Mount Vesuvius victim that basically turned to glass. The latest entrepreneurial trend of the pandemic taking off in part thanks to influencers? Vending machine ownership. A Wikipedia hack for learning new-to-you complex topics, and another U.S. president whose illness had the potential to throw the nation into chaos. Here are some cool things from the news today. Archaeologists have found evidence of neurons in the brain of a Mount Vesuvius victim, thanks to the fact that the heat of the volcano essentially turned the brain to glass. First of all, in terms of how rare it is to find a brain this old, quoting Ars Technica, according to Tim Thompson, a forensic anthropologist at Teesside University in the UK, brains don't typically survive for long after death. It's one of the earliest things to decompose in a standard decompositional context, he told Ars, but it is not unprecedented. Brain tissue does preserve, and it's a lot more common than people imagine. Alexandra Hayward, a graduate student in so-called paleoproteomics at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark, told ours, To date, she has located some 1,300 preserved brains dating back to the mid-16th and mid-17th centuries. The Vesuvian preserved brain studied by Petroni et al. is very old, although not the oldest, and unusual in terms of the hypothesis proposed about the precise mechanism by which it was preserved. End quote. So let's talk about that mechanism. Mount Vesuvius, in terms of thermal energy, was close to 100,000 times as powerful as the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. A 2001 study estimated that the volcanic ash and gases that covered the city were 500 degrees Celsius, or 932 degrees Fahrenheit, meaning they would have killed people in fractions of a second. In addition to burst skulls, one would expect the brains to have saponified, or turned into soap, aka glycerol and fatty acids, but still weird. But the brain of a victim first excavated in the 1960s was found to have vitrified, or fused into glass. Pier Paolo Petroni of the University Federico II of Naples and the lead author on this most recent and other Vesuvius studies wrote in the paper with his co-authors, quote, This suggests that extreme radiant heat was able to ignite body fat and vaporize soft tissue. The detection of glassy material from the victim's head, of proteins expressed in human brain, and of fatty acids found in human hair indicates the thermally induced preservation of vitrified human brain tissue, end quote. And quoting from Ars Technica, according to Petrone, this latest paper looked at the genetic expression of those previously identified proteins and also included the results of using scanning electron microscopy, SEM, to image vitrified brain and spinal cord remains. They found that the images revealed distinctive features typical of the human central nervous system, including evidence for neurons and white matter axons, end quote. Other scientists have other theories for how exactly this brain would have been preserved so well, including one that, rather than rapidly cooling, it was essentially baked over time with lower temperatures. But despite some disagreement about the commonality and mechanisms of brain preservation, all can agree that finding this much brain matter from a Vesuvius victim is pretty astonishing, especially when all others that have been excavated appeared to have their brains vaporized. So what made this person so special, and are there more like them? 
I suppose time will tell. Here's something I didn't see coming in 2020. Job loss and other economic hardships, paired with, in some cases, the influence of niche content creators, has sparked a surge in interest in vending machine ownership. Something I didn't realize is that more than half, in fact 67% of vending machines in the United States are owned by small, independent operators. About a third of the vending machines in the world are in the U.S., and of the two million currently operating ones, there is no single entity that owns more than 5% of the market. Even with Pepsi and Coca-Cola owning their own fleets of machines, most are owned by 17,600 small businesses. Some more vending machine stats for you, courtesy of a great breakdown in The Hustle. U.S.-based vending machines bring in $7.4 billion a year which means the average American spends $35 on vending machine purchases a year. And while 72% of the machines offer your standard fare of chips or sodas, what they call full-line machines in the biz, there are some strange offerings out there, including, quote, live hairy crabs, beluga caviar, engagement rings, live earthworms, morning-after pills, and now COVID-19 essentials like hand sanitizer and masks, end quote. A new vending machine can cost you between three dollars and $8,000 if you buy it straight from the manufacturer, but used ones online can be found for as low as a few hundred bucks. Buyers beware, however, because those ones often require substantial repairs, and even with the repairs made, businesses may be loath to want the older machine. And that's basically how the business works. You secure a machine, buy some inventory, which can be as easy as purchasing some wholesale items at a store like Costco, find somewhere to keep it, like an office, a laundromat, a school, anywhere really that might like one, and then regularly restock and maintain it. Something that has gotten easier in recent years thanks to telemetry tools allowing remote checks on inventory. Revenue can vary significantly. Of all the vending machine operators The Hustle spoke with, their income averaged $309 per machine per month. But many of them own multiple machines. One operator reported grossing $10,000 a month. That's before expenses, though. The Hustle notes that about 50% of revenue is used on purchasing inventory. Other than that, expenses include insurance, transportation, including sometimes special crews or equipment to move the 600 to 800 pound machines, transaction fees, commissions to the locations that house the machines, maintenance and repairs, and taxes. Still, despite those costs and the labor that can be involved in getting started, after securing a machine, some operators have made upwards of 100 calls to find a place to house it, and the competition is only getting more fierce. But many are still continuing to get in on the game. Jamie Ibanez has been a vending machine operator for two years, starting when he was just out of high school. He chronicles his business on his YouTube channel, which has over 300,000 subscribers. Between his behind-the-scenes look at a business many people probably hadn't considered before and his wild stunts like filling a machine with fireworks and testing out various rumored vending machine hacks, Ibanez has helped inspire others to give the business a shot themselves. And it's not just him who has spurred on the trend, it's, well, mostly the pandemic, which has led a lot of people to look for more stable forms of relatively passive income to lean back on now that their once-reliable jobs maybe don't seem as reliable as before. 
Barry and Lori Strickland, who run a six-week course for getting into the biz, said they saw a huge uptick in registrations for their course. And Vending Nation, a private Facebook group for people who operate vending machines, saw a 142% increase since January. Despite the income boost it's given so many people, a lot of existing vendors have been hurt by the pandemic. Not necessarily from the increased competition, although that's not helping, but rather because of the kinds of places that have closed, namely offices and schools. So while it is definitely a great backup to have, in some cases, even vending machine ownership isn't invincible when it comes to the pandemic. Alright, you know how when you go to Wikipedia, you type an abbreviation for the language version of the site you want to visit in the URL? Or if you want to get there another way, you've maybe at least noticed those abbreviations in the URL? For example, if you're listening to this podcast, you most likely go to English Wikipedia, so the URL is en.wikipedia.org. Well, at least in English, if you replace the en with the word simple, you get a version of Wikipedia written entirely in basic English. The site describes itself as being for everyone, but especially intended for children and adults who are learning English. And I would add that it's really useful for reading articles that are beyond your area of expertise, for which even the normal Wikipedia entry requires you to click nearly every other hyperlink for a definition. For example, here is the normal English Wikipedia's first few sentences about quantum mechanics. Quote, Quantum mechanics is a fundamental theory in physics that provides a description of the physical properties of nature at the scale of atoms and subatomic particles. It is the foundation of all quantum physics, including quantum chemistry, quantum field theory, quantum technology, and quantum information science. End quote. By contrast, here is the simple English entry. Quote, Quantum mechanics explains how the universe works at a scale smaller than atoms. It is also called quantum physics or quantum theory. Mechanics is the part of physics that explains how things move, and quantum is the Latin word for how much. A quantum of energy is the least amount possible, or the least extra amount, and quantum mechanics describes how that energy moves or interacts, end quote. I wouldn't say it's an equivalent replacement, the contents can differ quite a bit, but again, if you're learning English or learning a new topic, it can be a great way to wrap your head around it. I think of it a little bit like that subreddit explain like I'm five. Not every single page has been written in simple English yet, so you may occasionally navigate to a page that will have a banner telling you, quote, the English used in this article or section may not be easy for everybody to understand, end quote, and suggesting you to volunteer to write it yourself. And I mean, hey, if you're looking for ways to spend downtime during lockdown, helping expand simple Wikipedia with articles from your personal area of expertise sounds like a pretty cool option. Or you can at least go down the rabbit hole reading these articles and learning some new things. Given recent events, you may have heard a lot of people over the weekend mentioning how President Woodrow Wilson got sick from the 1918 flu epidemic. And while there are some similarities between his circumstances and the current president's, one major difference is that President Wilson's illness did not befall him during an election year, or any type of year that was politically extraordinary. But if you want a historical comparison for a time that a president got ill at such a delicate time, you could go back to 1790, when George Washington nearly died from the flu. 
An influenza epidemic began in New York in 1789. Remember, at this time, New York was the nation's capital. The president was spared initially, but when a second wave hit in spring of 1790, he succumbed to the illness, seeming to have caught it from James Madison, then a member of Congress and close advisor to Washington. Washington noted his illness in his diary for May 9th, saying, quote, "...indisposed with a bad cold, and at home all day writing letters on private business." End quote. And quoting further from the Washington Post, then it worsened into pneumonia. First Lady Martha Washington stayed by his side constantly. The city's best doctors were brought in to consult. Then they called in from Philadelphia the personal physician of Benjamin Franklin. Franklin had just died of an infection of the lungs. They sneaked the doctor into Washington's residence so as not to alert and perhaps panic the public. But rumors swirled anyway when the street around the residence was closed and hay laid down to muffle sound and try to help the president rest. End quote. Records show that many truly feared he was going to die, and had he, it would have sent the nation into a chaos that may have prevented us from ever getting onto the path our nation has tread. For better or worse, we will never know. Quoting again, The new constitution lacked detailed instructions on how to treat presidential incapacitation and death. This was remedied in the 20th century by the 25th Amendment. Washington's personal secretary basically ran the government for a few weeks. Vice President John Adams, a brilliant but polarizing figure, would never have been the unifying figure needed to launch the constitutional experiment, biographer Ron Chernow said. Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton acted like a de facto head of state while simultaneously accusing Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson of positioning himself to assume the presidency, end quote. But Washington recovered in a couple of weeks and went on to serve nearly seven more years as president before retiring and passing away two years later at the age of 67 from a still-debated illness. And this comparison is neither here nor there. Looking back to history can sometimes be informative, but is often misleading if relied on too heavily. And mostly, I just heard a lot about Woodrow Wilson over the past few days and found this footnote about George Washington vaguely interesting. And now I must recommend everyone watch Brad Neely's amazing George Washington cartoon from 2009, link in the show notes. But if you've never seen it before, just a warning that the language used is not appropriate for work. So pop some headphones on if you've got kids or coworkers around. That's all for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kaki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'm going to go use simple Wikipedia to try to understand basic human interaction. I hope you have a good rest of your day, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No. Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So, at four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual, because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamins. The ingredients are 100% traceable, it's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals, and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because 
let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast.